Hello, my name's Tom Purcell, and today I'm turning the tables on the founder of the Property Development Live podcast, Paul Merrick, and asking him the questions so that we can get a real feel for his experience and views on property in general, developments in particular, and perhaps we'll stray into other territory as well. We'll see. Paul, welcome. Good to get this chance to interrogate you, as it were. So let's jump straight in. At school. Did you harbour thoughts of a career in property down the line? Well, school wasn't the best of times for me because I'm severely dyslexic. So I spent as little time as at school as humanly possible. In fact, in primary, my attendance rate in many of the years was 15%. So I'm very proud of that. I managed to escape quite a lot. So what that did was that gave me lots of time to have outside influences. And my outside influences, strangely enough, were radio. Um, as a dyslexic, I wasn't a reader, but I was a great listener to radio and started to listen to all types of radio, local radio, uh, international radio, and even as a youngster listening to Radio 4. And I would say that radio was a great educator for me. So my first ambitions, my first um, aspirations as a career was to be as a broadcaster. Like a lot of us. Indeed. Um, and that rolled into my first ever um, job, if you like, because at the age of 15, I built my own um, mobile disco equipment because I couldn't afford to buy mobile disco equipment. So I literally went down to the local dump, picked up some old record players. I wonder if there's people out there who still remember record players. This was before CDs, it was record players. And I built my own sound equipment and I built my own twin decks and I built my own lights and off I went to seek my fame and fortune running a mobile disco, which was called, cringily, the Disco Kids Mobile Disco. Uh, where, did you, uh, where did you do your spinning of the 45s in those early days? Well, originally I just kind of shoved some adverts in the local paper and got some neon signs made and put them up and uh, was hired for birthday parties and weddings and children's parties, the usual thing. And about six months in a year in, I was found by a chap called David Higgins, who run the biggest disco organisation, mobile disco organisation in Scotland, called Zodiac Discos. And um, he headhunted me at the age of, of 16 to come and work for him. So it would be fair to say, Paul, that you were an entrepreneur from an early age. You, you took your dyslexia and what a lot of people might have thought would be something that would hold you back and you turned it into something positive and uh, became an entrepreneur uh, in the mobile disco world. But take me through your career progression from there. Where did it, uh, up to the point where you decided um, maybe property might be what I ought to really be doing instead? So my great love in life at that point in time was music and cars. Um, still is, strangely enough. So I used to go up to the car auctions on a very regular basis. And I started very simply saving up some money, buying some cars for about £50 that needed um, some kind of work. Um, I wasn't old enough at that point in time to drive them home. So my brother would drive them home from the auction. I would repair them and then I would sell them. So yes, an, an entrepreneur from day one, I suppose, uh, and I just just a great love of, I think you should always do something that you really love. You shouldn't do it for the money, you should do it for the love. I love cars, I love music, and they were my two early careers. I soon discovered that the car trade had way too many people in it. And also it had a very bad reputation. I didn't really want involved with that. But through that, um, I discovered an interest in, in, I have an interest in anything with wheels. So I discovered an interest in commercial vehicles and plants. 
And I soon moved from buying and selling cars to buying and selling commercial vehicles. That, um, I won't bore you with a very long story, but that eventually led to running a business where we were exporting vehicle components, commercial vehicle and plant components to most parts of the world, which is what I did up until my late 20s, um, early 30s. Always with an interest in property, I'd started going to property auctions around about the same time, strangely enough, I started to go to car auctions when I was about um, 15, 16, but never kind of got the guts to actually buy a property until I was in my early 30s. And eventually I bought my first property, which wasn't with the intention of being a great entrepreneur in property. It was with the intention of building my own premises, a big, large shed, and building a house adjacent to it. And through uh, some strange circumstances, um, we ended up not building that out, but actually renting it out for twice each year what we paid for the whole site. And we rented it out for five years in total. And that gave me a real taste for property. This was your light bulb moment, wasn't it, then, with property? This was the moment I realised that um, there was a lot of money to be made in property. And not only was it something I was interested in, because, you know, I, I am a frustrated architect. It, not only was it something I was interested in, but it was something that I could possibly one day make a living out of. Did you say it was a shed to start with? It's an interesting story, and we won't bore the listeners with it too much, but when I bought it, I bought it direct from the brewery, and it had been a pub that had been closed down about 25 miles outside of Glasgow, and there was a pub and some cottages along beside the pub that had all been knocked down. And the rubble of all of that was still sitting there. And the pub wasn't successful. The pub was called the Rat Pit. So I'm not sure that's a great name to give your pub. Anyway, we bought it from the brewery with the intention of clearing the site, building a house to live in, and building a large shed to run my vehicle components export business from. I didn't, I didn't mishear. You did say shed. And uh, that meant you were looking at uh, making shed loads of money from it all going down the line. But uh, forget my, um, uh, forget my sense of humor that probably will be lost on a few people. Uh, what was your um, first uh, investment purchase? Uh, other than that, did you live in that? You didn't end up living in that? We didn't end up doing anything with that. It turned out that a large company, who a large mining company, um, had actually bought acres and acres of land round about that small site. That small site was about 0.6 of an acre, and they'd bought acres and acres round about that to run an open-cast mine. And they got full planning consent for their open-cast mine, but in the rush to do so, they had not notified one of their neighbours, who was me. I was so small, the site was so insignificant that they didn't realise they hadn't notified me of their planning consent, which makes their planning consent invalid. Oh, very interesting. But tell me, Paul, how did you finance this first foray of yours? Well, that was the grand sum of £2,500. So even at that um, relatively young age of early 30s, that was not an amount of money that I couldn't come up with myself. And it was going to cost a lot more to build it out, but actually to buy it did that. And we then spent about another five, six hundred pounds on planning. And interestingly enough, um, we've done an interview with Walter Woods, where, uh, the architect on Property Development Live, and that's when I first met Walter. But as I say, it turned out that PLC, who are a large mining company, were... Um, in desperate need, not of my land, but for me not to object to their planning. 
So they ended up leasing the piece of land off me for five years, which was the period of time for the open cast mine for twice every year what I had paid for the land. What a lovely story of, and, and, and a great way to have started the property journey. There was no development. There was no, you came up with the cash, presumably you didn't have to borrow it. Um, it, it sounds like the dream starts, but, but a lot of people don't get dream starts. What was your first hard knock or did you never really have one? Hard knocks are an interesting thing. Um, this sounds a, a little too um, American um, motivational speaking for me, but I don't really believe in hard knocks. I believe in lessons. I, I believe that my dad um, taught me a great lesson. He said, you know, the man that makes a mistake once is human. The man that makes the same mistake twice is stupid. So I have made many mistakes the first time round, uh, but learn from them so that I don't make them again. The biggest mistake I made was the second development that I ever bought, which was 22 units, which took me three years of my life and gave me all the grey hairs that I have now and taught me that you don't bite off more than you can chew. So I'd had a great start, a great financial start in terms of that development, a great ego boost in terms of I can be this good at property and it's my first one. And then I went out and bit off more than I could chew. Yes, we finished the development. Yes, we made money out of it. And yes, it was successful. But would I do it again? No. It was too much, too quick. And it is one of the things that I see many new developers do is they, they try to climb the ladder way too quickly and take on too large a development too quickly. Well, uh, yes, uh, and, and that's like any business that, that uh, ramps up and thinks that they've got, uh, they know it all and it's, they um, open new stores or go into new markets and territories without uh, knowing the underlying uh, intelligence required around all that. So you got away with that and you did learn a lot and that was, that was good. Did you ever take in partners or get involved in JVs in those early days? Um, we did. Um, one of the first commercial projects we did, we took in a partner, a JV partner. I was very naive in that. Um, I didn't do enough research about my JV partner. I didn't establish what um, clearly enough what they were going to bring to the, the table. And I think that's because I made the fatal mistake of taking on a friend as opposed to a partner. And what we did was we had some idle chats about what we were going to do, but nothing was ever put down in black and white. And we didn't clearly define who would do what to each other, to be honest, or definitely in, in a legal document. And that ended quite badly. We ended up buying that partner out. It taught me many lessons about the legal due diligence you need to do and the amount of detail you need to talk about before you start any kind of partnership ship or JV. Um, retrospectively, I'm sure at the time I would have blamed him 100%, but retrospectively I would say that I was naive and that we didn't discuss enough in detail who was going to do what. You know, it's a who, what and when when you have a partner. Who is going to do what? When are they going to do it? And we didn't discuss that in enough detail. As friends, you didn't hold each other to account, did you? And that was uh, probably the basis of, uh, of where it started going wrong and un, un, uh, you know, coming apart. I think I tried to hold him to account. I think what I didn't take into consideration was his home life, 
you know, because when you take on a business partner, you don't take on one person. Quite often you take on a family, you know, he had a wife, he had children. So you were taking, they would all have a view when he turned up at home and you have to bring, one of the things I learned about that is that you bring everybody in. You make sure that if somebody's got a life partner, that you sit down with both parties and you say, look, this is what I expect you to do. This is what, you know, we're going to be doing. Is everybody okay with that? Um, and what, what became blatantly obvious in that situation was he was as keen as mustard and could see the opportunity, but he, ha he already had a business and his wife was really keen that he focused on his own business and didn't diversify. And that caused endless problems because he was torn between trying to please his wife and please me. Did it put you off going into business with partners or joint venture partners? I don't think anything in life should put you off if you take it as an education, if you learn from that and say, okay, what did I do wrong? You know, we've got a great desire in this society to blame other people. It's always the government's fault. It's the council's fault. It's the next door neighbor's fault. Um, I've always grew up with a culture of if I do things, if something goes wrong in my life, no matter which part of my life that is, it's probably my fault. So I took that as a learning lesson and no, it didn't, it didn't even slow me down. What it did, though, was make me much wiser for the next time that I took on a business partner. Yeah. Well, you, you referred to uh, Walter Wood, your architect, earlier on, and he was part of your um, team. Uh, I hate the phrase power team, but um, and trainers love to refer to the power team. But um, other than Walter, who has been with you and you have been with him for well over 20 years, have you ever really relied um, on other professionals, um, trades in your 25 plus year career um, that you, people or trades or professions that you really feel are important and you've stuck with and uh, have been really a part of your success? I think one of the things that you do is you find the right people. And I've been very privileged or very clever or a combination of both. I'm never sure that I have found lots of the right people. Um, when I was in the vehicle components business, I had a, a friend who'd worked with me for about 10 years and he was a vital part of the business. And he wasn't interested when I moved into the property business. It just wasn't interesting to him. But I did come across a very young chap called Stephen Maguire. And I, Stephen Maguire came to work with me when he was um, 17. And he worked with me right up till he was 40. And Stephen today still helps out in our business. Although he's not an employee and he's not a subcontractor, he still helps out in our business. And Stephen actually rents one of our commercial units now where he, um, he has his own business running. But he's always been, and I think always will be to a certain extent, a key part of um, my business. And of course, the other person that I can't have this podcast uh, without mentioning is Margaret Ann my wife and business partner. Um, Margaret Ann owns 25% of our core business and is a very key part of what we do. And we, we have very key roles. We have very individual roles. We have roles that we play and try not to cross the other person's role. So Margaret Ann is amazingly good at the nuts and bolts of the business, at the detail of the business, or at the accounts and at the communication skills, because that's her background. And I'm very good at spotting an opportunity and following that through and hopefully communicating that across to other people. So without those two people, Stephen and Margaret Ann, I wouldn't have the business I have today. 
Interesting. And there's, there, well, obviously, you're, you're still with your wife. She's part of your life. Uh, she's your business partner and your life partner. And, and Stephen has been an integral part. It's lovely to hear that. Did you ever, I'm interested, Paul, did you ever have a mentor that you bounced ideas off? What's really interesting is I don't believe that you need a mentor in the particular business that you're in. I think you can have a mentor in any business because I believe property is a business. I don't believe it's an investment. I, you know, I, I object greatly to this concept that it's an investment. It's not an investment. And let me tell you why it's not an investment. Property is a business. And property is a business because if you buy or you rent property, you have a customer. If you have a customer, you have a business. And if you have a business, you have a job. So I am completely against this theory that it's an investment like buying stocks and shares. It's a business. So most of my experience wasn't with property people. It was with people in businesses outside of um, property. And two of my key mentors were a chap called Walter Sterlin and a chap called Michael Beckett, both from the motor trade. And I learned different things from, from each mentor. And they never knew they were mentors. They never said, I'm going to be your mentor. I just learned from being around them. But what I learned from Walter was an attitude to life. And what I learned from Michael was detail. So the detail that Michael taught me was, you know, know your product very well. Understand your product better than any customer and ideally better than your competition. And what I learned from Walter was an attitude to life which I think sums up life perfectly, not just property, not just business, but life. And here was Walter's motto. And I heard that every time that I was down, every time that I was lost, every time that I was confused, Walter would say to me, Paul, it'll be a bugger, but it'll be all right. It will be a bugger, but it will be all right. And what Walter meant was, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's not going to be easy, but it will be all right you will work your way through it. And that's been my philosophy, not just for business, but for life. I, I would imagine that someone told him those wise words, but it's it's lovely that you've been able to keep them um, close to your mind and your heart, and they've served you well, those words, haven't they? Um, Paul, you've got a fairly substantial portfolio of both residential and commercial property, uh, and it's debt-free. Um, did you have a deliberate desire or aim to owe nothing or did you escape 2008 by the skin of your teeth and thought, blimey, don't want to get caught like that again? No, I set out clearly. I had a clear objective. I think one of the things that you must have in a business, no matter which business it is, one of the things you must have in a business is a clear objective. And my clear objective was very simple. It wasn't confusing and it wasn't difficult. And I think that's one of the things a clear objective has to be. Very simple. Something you can remember every day. And here's the, the phrase I used to chant inside my head on a daily basis. Because I did go through the point of having debt, but here's the phrase I used to chant in my head every day. I want to own property. I don't want to own debt. So I had no aspiration to have a £10 million portfolio where I owed £9.5 If I was going to own a £10 million portfolio, I wanted to own it outright with no debt. And leverage generally, are you a fan at all? And do you see a time when you might borrow again for an opportunity? Now my, my preferred method and has been probably for the last 10 years has been rather than straightforward borrowing. I, am, I prefer JVs. 
let me just clarify what I mean by a JV. A JV is not a loan from another person. A JV is we are both in this venture together. I see no difference fundamentally between borrowing £200,000 off of you and owing you £200,000 than I do owing the bank £200,000. What I see the advantage in is saying, you know, Tom, here's an interesting opportunity. I think we can both make money at this. Do you want to invest along with me? Now, that gives you the opportunity to make approximately the same rewards as me, but it also gives you the exact same risk as me. So what we've done for the last over 10 years, when we've needed money for bigger projects, then we have um, JV'd with other people. So our comfortable level um, of debt-free purchase is about half a million pounds, um, 500,000. But once we go beyond that 500,000, then we, we need the help of other people. And I would much rather take that as help, as a joint venture partner, a genuine joint venture partner, than I would alone. Which do you prefer, Paul, residential or commercial? And drilling down further, what types of those subsectors are you particularly attracted to or you find fits your, um, your mindset, your skill set? So I'll always have a preference for commercial because I came from a commercial background. You know, I started um, running a business, as I say, when I was 15 and I've, I've always understood that customer very well. I've always understood the customer who rents a small industrial unit or a small office. I've always understood that customer very, very well. And that's the key basis. That's where I'm most comfortable. That's the customer that I enjoy spending time with and that I enjoy supplying a service to because we're in the service industry. We're in the people business. Residential, I have never really enjoyed owning and renting out residential property I've enjoyed building residential properties and handing them over to someone else as a home. But I've always tried to keep a balanced portfolio. So our portfolio is 60-40, 60% commercial, 40% residential. We've not bought a residential property to rent out for over five years um, and have no intentions of doing so. It's a market I'm moving away from rather than moving into. I'll never put a tenant out. Um, some of the tenants have been with me for in excess of 20 years. Um, but what I will do is when a property becomes empty, I will sell it into the open market. And I will ideally not sell it to another investor because I don't really want to sell somebody something I wouldn't do myself. You know, here, buy this, buy to let off me because I don't want to have buy to lets anymore. Just doesn't ring true to me. But I would prefer to sell it to someone as a home. And with commercial property, um Retail is um, on its backside at the moment. We're not quite sure. We'll be getting on to COVID-19 in, in a few minutes' time, but retail is on its backside. Uh, logistics and warehouses look as if they could be entering into a, or if they haven't already, uh, a, a very good period with Amazon and the other logistics companies. Where do you see your, if any, your commercial journey and path from here on in? I mean, I'm in semi-retirement now and I'm moving into retirement. So over the next few years, we will sell off all of our portfolio, absolutely all of it. And that shocks people sometimes to say, well, why don't, you know, if you've got parts like commercial properties that are, are managing themselves and are on an FRI lease, why would you sell them? 
And that's because I think this business is a people business and I have a working relationship and a constant relationship with all of my tenants. And I wouldn't want to become some distant landlord who wasn't in daily, weekly, monthly contact with my tenants. So we will sell everything over a period of time. But we're in the um, disposal rather than the acquisition stage of my life. If you were still in the acquisition stage, what do you, and, and a lot of people still are, and they're looking at their SASs, for example, and other ways of releasing funds to get into that area. What area of commercial do you think people ought to be looking at and taking uh, serious consideration of just now? What's always worked very, very well for us is small industrial units. And I think that's um, grown over the last five to six years because of the amount of businesses that are going online. And most businesses now do not need a retail premises. You know, if, you, if you're running a hairdresser, yes, you still need a retail premises. But if you're delivering sound equipment or you're delivering fitness equipment or you're just delivering health foods, you don't need a retail premises anymore. You need a small industrial unit where you can send stuff out because most stuff will be bought online. We were quite early into that trend. I've seen that trend coming and that's been a, a large part of our business. Our sweet spot has always been units from 1,000 to 3,000 square feet. So although we've got units that reach up to nine, 10,000 square feet, they're always more difficult to let and more difficult to keep a tenant in than units between 1,000 and 3,000 square feet. Excellent. Well, that's that's a, a good pointer for anyone uh, listening and watching this and able to uh, take some notes uh, as to where they might go with their commercial journey if that's what they decide to do later on. In part two, I chat to Paul about his development influences, the three Ps, people, process, and property, people being the most important, of course, the opportunities out of the coronavirus pandemic, um, his views on the build-to-rent scene and why that's been so popular over the last couple of years, and what is Property Development Live all about? Join Paul and his future guests on the YouTube channel, the podcast, and the Facebook page. This is Tom Purcell. I hope you've enjoyed a very fascinating chat with Paul Merrick and the Property Development Live team.